Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language service company. They have over a decade of industry experience providing on-site, video remote, and over-the-phone interpretation, translation, and ASL services to public and private sector clients. They're continuously recruiting for freelance interpreters and translators, so make sure to check out their website for new career opportunities. Liberty is passionate about making interpreter education more accessible to everyone. So whether you're new to interpreting or have been interpreting professionally for years, you can take advantage of their online courses, workshops, and CEUs. Their most popular online course is the Professional Medical Interpreter. It's a self-paced, comprehensive, 40-hour medical interpreting course for individuals looking to get qualified to interpret in medical and healthcare settings. Upon completion of the course, students will be able to earn the title of Qualified Medical Interpreter. And for a limited time only, Liberty is offering a discount for the Professional Medical Interpreter course to brand the interpreter listeners. Use the discount code BTI50 when you sign up online for the Professional Medical Interpreter to get $50 off the course. You can find the discount code and more information about Liberty Language Services in the episode notes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host. Happy November. I feel like I've been a bit MIA lately, but in all actuality, I've been busy behind the scenes, planning, delivering presentations, and preparing for next season. Which brings me actually to my next point. I really need to hear your feedback in terms of what you'd like to see, or should I say hear, for next season. If you have any ideas you'd like to shoot my way, connect with me or send me a message on social media or visit my website at www.brandtheinterpreter.com and send me your thoughts. I hope to hear from you soon. Also, I'm nowhere near my goal of 50 reviews on Apple Podcasts. So if you're tuning in on an Apple device, please go leave this podcast a positive review. I would really appreciate it. Okay, now on with the show. Born of Mexican immigrant parents, Jeanette Valdez grew up in the Los Angeles County area. She earned her certificate in recording engineering as well as degrees in music business and business administration. While in school, she attended various service trips to Mexico where she acted as an interpreter while providing humanitarian aid to her team. Loving international service, she later became an assistant country director with Global Expeditions on various humanitarian trips to Panama and Mexico, where she unknowingly developed her consecutive and relay interpretation skills. After a decade of working at the Disneyland Resort as a multi-language sales specialist, trainer, and bilingual traditions facilitator, she studied Spanish legal interpreting at the Southern California School of Interpretation with Nestor Wagner. As part of her interpretation studies, she completed internships with Teen Court, LACBA Domestic Violence Project, and Harriet Buhai Center for Family Law. She later completed the University of Arizona's National Center for Interpretation Court Interpreters Training Institute. She is currently a traveling senior interpreter serving different courthouses across the United States to interpret for the Department of Justice Executive Office for Immigration Review and facilitating first-time interpreter orientations. So, without further ado, here's Janet Valdez. Janet, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks. Good. Great. I'm so glad we get to finally talk about something that is actually not 
uh, a topic that I've brought in, you know, or an interpreter in this specialty or in this specialization that I've yet brought in. So you are the first and I'm super excited to learn a lot more about the day-to-day of an interpreter in immigration. But before we get started with all of that, we got to take it a little bit back and start with, I'm always curious in finding out the stories of language professionals from the very beginning. So as a kid, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? So when I was like in elementary school, it was like some sort of scientist. Like I wanted to be like an astronomer, an environmentalist, something to do with the sciences. Once I got in high school, that kind of shift to like music, like music production or like songwriting, recording engineering, something like that. So probably nothing to do with interpreting (laughs) to even those two are different. And then compared to what I actually do now, completely different. But I think the reason why I think Bill Nye inspires so many of us 90s kids to love science. (laughs) And I'm definitely a product of that. So, but once I started taking like chemistry in middle school, it was all like, whoa, this is hard. (laughs) Maybe I should think about this again. Exactly. Yeah. That's so interesting. I always really do enjoy just listening to if it's anywhere near or, you know, if there were like any, any, any basic thoughts about, you know, what it, what it is um, that the language professional entailed, if we even knew about it, right? Like uh, at that time, share with us, Janet, your favorite or fond memory of your childhood. Take us back to where you grew up and, you know, just how, how things were in your household. Did you grow up bilingual, you know, things like that? Yeah, I definitely grew up bilingual. So Spanish was my first language. I grew up in Huntington Park, California, which I looked it up recently. When I lived there, it was 95% Hispanic slash Latinos, and now it's like 96 or 97. So yeah, everyone in my city grew up, like it was rare to find anyone who didn't speak Spanish. In fact, my elementary school back in the 90s in California, there was bilingual education, meaning if you reported like on whatever census your parents filled out when you were a kid. If you said your home language was Spanish, you started learning in Spanish right from kindergarten. So the way it worked is you learned Spanish up until about third grade. And then third grade, 10% English was introduced. By fourth grade, 50% English was introduced. And by fifth grade, it was 100% English. Um, And I recently learned this in the uh, Lingua Cultura conference. I did attend a a special room about bilingual education. And they explained this to me and all of a sudden my life made sense. I was like, that's why I did that. And in my school, in each grade, there was literally only one class in English and we did year round track school. So that means that 90, what, 5% of the classes were in, were in Spanish and only a minute, you know, number of students spoke only English, didn't speak Spanish at all. So it was a very interesting community. Um, Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because now it, it is uh, quite unique. Well, at least in my experience and, and in the surroundings uh, here in California to have they what they not now call, or I'm not sure if it's always been called um, dual immersion programs. So it's basically, you know, the same concept um, and not all school districts offer that. So um, that it's so interesting. Would you credit that experience in school growing up with your ability to maintain both languages? Would you say it's a combination of both the schooling and at home? What would you credit, you know, being able to sustain both languages and being fully bilingual? You know, my brother is five years younger than me, and um, we moved out of that uh, city before he hit third grade. So before the um, English integration started and he struggles a lot in Spanish, whereas I don't. So while we both grew up in the same household, him being again five years younger, and I went through the whole program as it was meant to be, I highly credit the program. Um, in fact, in the conference I talked about, I, I, I explained my upbringing and they were like, yeah, that's how it was supposed to work. And these were doctors who know about, you know, linguistics and they're like, yeah, the reason why your brother struggles is because he didn't complete the program mm-hmm. as it was meant to be. So I highly credit 
the structure, although it's, it's kind of funny. Like if you ask me for my multiplication tables, I have to like translate in my head in Spanish. (laughs) So like math and stuff I do in Spanish, um, like just in my head. I mean, it takes like, like half a second to do it, but I do think math and numbers in Spanish in my head. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting, but I, I definitely credit that. And of course, you know, having parents who speak Spanish to all the time didn't hurt, but compared yeah. to my brother, I can see how much it, it helped doing that schooling. For sure. I had the same experience, um, in LAUSD and, um, but I, I, before, before the program was completed, um, from what I remember the LAUSD went through a, a complete change and they eliminated, um, you know, the bilingual program by the time I was, I want to say maybe fourth grade, third grade, fourth grade, somewhere around the lines. But I do remember, you know, going into a classroom and it being completely in Spanish and um, and learning the word dinosaurio. And I just thought, wow, that's such a cool word in Spanish. I just learned, I can't wait to get home and tell my dad because my dad was very like strict with one language or the other, but no combo. Right. And if I uh, speak to you in Spanish, I, I expect the response to be in Spanish. Right. And so he was a stickler with regards to the languages at home. Mainly he wanted me to keep the Spanish, but, uh, but so in, in the moment in the classroom, I remember thinking like, oh, I can't wait to like to tell my dad about the new Spanish word that I just learned, mm-hmm. dinosaurio. So I think that's a great experience, you know, in terms of, of having that immersion program in the schools and we're growing up thinking like, oh, okay, I know some of this already, right? I recognize this, you know, it's, it's kind of cool for my parents as opposed to the experience of nobody here speaks Spanish and it's so not cool to speak Spanish. Everybody's English only, you know, like, Kind of, I, I feel like a lot of like the youth, unfortunately, kind of feel like that growing up with their um, native language. What has been Janet moving forward now? Uh, the inspiration behind becoming a language professional. Take us now through the experience of. So you got to middle school and were like, nope, these science classes are getting a little too hard. And then high school, you thought about arts, music. At what point? did you become interested in the possibility of becoming a language professional? So a few funny stories uh, to talk about. So in high school, I took um, Spanish for native speakers one, and I actually won an award. It was the second highest language award for the entire school, not just my grade, not just Spanish, but the entire school. And only seniors got the high award. So me as a freshman to get the second highest award was crazy. And it was, it was really neat for, I just loved learning, you know, the actual like rules are like where the accent mark goes and why they go there and like, and all these rules. So that's kind of like when I really started to, I guess, appreciate Spanish. Because I went to middle school in uh, Rancho Palos Verdes. Do not get confused with the name. They do not speak Spanish there. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, you know, the token like Hispanic kid there. Um, At the time, like I knew all the words to Lion King in Spanish. So people thought it was my schoolmates thought it was funny that I could sing all the songs in Spanish. So I kind of I went from going to mostly Spanish to absolutely no Spanish and now back to learning like the actual rules of Spanish. So I think that really intrigued me. And then normally you go, you know, Spanish for native speakers one, Spanish for native speaker two, AP Spanish, AP Spanish literature. And I kind of skipped because my um, Spanish teacher also taught AP Spanish literature. She's like, you know what, you can skip all that because your, your Spanish is good enough. So I went straight into AP Spanish uh, literature. And then I took the two AP Spanish tests, the literature and the language, and I passed both with a five, which is the strongest. So I guess, I guess I always had this snack for Spanish, for lack of a better explanation. So backtrack. So my senior year of high school, I was only going to high school half the day because I had so many credits. And so I was able to go to community college the other half. And all I was taking was music classes because that's what I loved. And that's what I thought I was going to go into. Mm-hmm. So right after high school, I actually didn't go to college right away. I worked at music studios. I went to sound school, got certified in sound um, and kind of started working in music. But it was like the 
crash of the early 2000s music scene. So there was unfortunately not much money to be made. Um, and someone suggested go to school, go to, go to college. And I was like, okay. So I didn't go to college right away. It wasn't something that was expected of me. Mm-hmm. being first generation and everything. So I actually went a couple years after. And even though I was studying music business at the time, I was involved in our um, our um, humanitarian trips to Mexico, where, of course, I acted as an interpreter <laughs> unknowingly. This was this, I, oh, I, I'm sorry, Janet, was this a uh, faith-based or schooling? It was faith-based, or? but okay. I went to a Christian school, a Christian. It was a Sousa Pacific University. Ah, understood. So, yeah, so it was a uh, missionary work, but it was through the school. And then also one of our classes was to go out and work in the community. And Sousa is a primarily Hispanic community. So, again, I was always interpreting they would put me on stage to speak both languages for like our community events. So I was always kind of doing it. Um, and then unfortunately, like due to health reasons and other reasons, I, I had to stop going to university. So I didn't, I didn't finish the first time around. Um, and I started working at Disneyland in their sales center where once again, I was doing Spanish and English. So I feel like it was always part of me because Spanish, just like I said, came so easily. So eventually I became a trainer for the Spanish team. I was also a bilingual traditions trainer, which is kind of the orientation date for anyone that works at the Disneyland Resort. So I was teaching the first class they ever saw in both English and Spanish. In fact, in the middle of me being this trainer, they revamped the script and they only did it in English. And I remember I was like studying the English, trying to memorize it. And then I realized, wait, am I teaching my first class in English or Spanish? I, yeah, I call, I call them up. They're like, it's Spanish. And guess what? We don't have a script. And before we had the script in the two languages. So it was on my own getting it and just, you know, translating it. And in fact, when I had to teach the class, there was another um, trainer with me and he also didn't know, but he didn't think to ask if he was doing it in English or Spanish. So he didn't know it in English, all alone in Spanish. So it was like the Janet show because I had to do the whole thing. But yeah, so I just feel like it's always part of me. And then um, while I was working at Disney, I did other uh, mission trips to Mexico and Panama. And Panama was really interesting because I, I was with the indigenous people group Kuna. And so they actually don't speak Spanish. They speak Kuna. And it's, it's kind of like most, you know, Latin American indigenous languages where some Spanish words are sprinkled in because they don't have an equivalent, mm. but I didn't understand most of what they were saying. And I, I called it the Isle of Lucy translation. I don't know if you've ever seen that episode where Lucy goes to France and she gets arrested and then they have like five interpreters, <laughs> which was yes. always, my, it was always my favorite episode growing up. Um, again, I feel like I always had this knack for languages because that episode was like my favorite growing up. I love that scene. I would see that episode all the time. And in Panama, I had, I had to basically do that where I spoke English and Spanish and my group spoke English. So there was the person speaking in Kuna and then usually there was someone that knew Kuna and Spanish. And then I would go uh, Spanish to English to the team. So I was <laughs> doing my own little I love loose line and and I do that a lot on immigration so that came in handy that practice came in handy yeah but to finish that off so I really wanted to go into the Peace Corps after doing all this humanitarian work and I got accepted based on merit I went back to school got my degree in business just so that I can go to the Peace Corps I made it in on merit unfortunately due to an inner ear problem that I have I couldn't pass the medical because they're very strict on the medical. I was supposed to go to the Dominican Republic. I was so excited to go three, literally three days before bags are packed. They decide, unfortunately, you didn't pass medical. You you can't go. And I was so bummed. And I had kind of told Disney I was leaving after 11 years. So I kind of stayed on a little bit. And eventually they were like, no, we got to let you go. (laughs) We were kind of waiting for you to go. You know, I was at peace with it. Mm. So, so here's where it really kicks in. So I got let go on a Thursday and I was so at peace with it after I got let go. I'm a huge hockey fan, also baseball, but this particular time right afterwards, I went to go watch a hockey game at the Honda center, which is right there, <laughs> right near Disneyland. So I went to go watch the hockey game. <laughs> it was a playoff game. We won. I was so excited. And then on Sunday, 
um, I normally run the camera um, at church, at my church, which is Angela's Temple in, in Echo Park. They go, you know, our, we need someone to interpret. The normal interpreter didn't make it. Here, you do it. And they literally handed me a mic. And I'm like, I am doing what now? <laughs> so up to this point, I had only done what I now know to be consecutive. I had never done simultaneous. And that's what I had to do for the first time. So they just threw me to the wolves. And I started doing it. Mind you, I have no job right now. I'm just kind of figuring out what to do. Um, my dreams are crushed, right? Because I don't get to go right. to the And here at church, they're like, here's my go interpret. And I did that. So I would do like one service camera and then another service interpreting. And again, I got like on a Thursday. This was on a Sunday. So I was doing that um, for May, June. And then my dad comes home one day. He goes, hey, my coworker's son just finished a program, interpreting program in Santa Fe Springs, which is the Southern California School of Interpretation, right? With Nestor Wagner. He thinks you'd be great at it. You should go. I was like, I don't know. So I went to the orientation in early July and they were like, well, we have all these internship opportunities. You know, they were explaining and one of them is Teen Court and Teen Court just sounded so cool. I was like, I want to do that. But they were like, the only way you can do Teen Court is if you enroll in July because we need you for the whole year, July to the following May. And you have to be there like every month. So if you enroll later, because I was in my head thinking, maybe I'll wait till September, see if something else comes up. But this opportunity sounded so cool. So I need to enroll now. So right after orientation, I enrolled. So I started, um, you know, going to school there and I did every internship that they offered. So I did do teen court. I also did the um, the Harry Buhai Center for Family Law. I know you had another guest talk about that. Um, and I actually just won their volunteer of the year award last year. That's how much I love wow. that organization. Yeah. Then I also did their LACBA, LACBA which is the LA County Bar Association um, domestic violence project. So I did those three internships and because I wasn't working whenever someone else with other commitments couldn't go, they would call me and I would go. So I kind of fell in love with it at that point. Um, I finished school. I took the exam. I didn't pass because in California, no one passes on the first time. So I hear. And yeah, Cal- that's a whole other conversation about the exam in California. But And when you say the exam, uh, explain to our listeners which exam, please, Janet. Yeah, so it's it's the bilingual interpreting exam to be a court certified interpreter. Well, every state has it. I'm specifically talking about California. Um, so that's where you have four sections. You have a you get a paper that's written all in like legal English terms and you have to read it and then verbally translate it into Spanish. Then you get the Spanish legal paper, you read it, you verbally translate it into English. Then they do about half an hour of consecutive, you know, where someone asks the questions, you interpret it, they answer, you interpret it back. And then they do about 15 to 20 minutes of simultaneous. At this Um, point, did you know that you were going to go into immigration or was this in preparation for working in the court system specifically? Yeah, I didn't know this was just to work as an interpreter, whether it be in the courts or otherwise. Um, I just know that you kind of it helps if you're certified. And that was the whole point of going to through the classes was to get certified. Mm. So I took the exam. I didn't pass. Um, and again, that's normal, but let's be real. Who doesn't get bummed out? You know, right. after you don't pass an exam. Um, and then I kind of started working just at another customer service job where I, again, used my Spanish skills because I would have to answer emails in both English and Spanish. Um, So all the Spanish emails were sent over my way. And I also translated the website for for this makeup company. So I did that. And then um, I got recruited by SOSI, which is SOS International. They're the ones that have the contract for immigration court. I got recruited either through LinkedIn or Indeed. I can't remember which one, but my rose, my resume was posted. I got a call um, saying, you, we want to talk to you. So the, so the way, at least specifically for Spanish, because Spanish is, as you can imagine, the most sought after and the most common language needed, 
is that it doesn't matter what previous experience you have, whether you're certified or not, you must take their classes. Mm -hmm. So the first thing you do is they have to see your resume showing you have one year of experience in the judicial setting. So my teen court counted for that. So so glad I did do that that internship. Um, So count it for that. And, And so after they review and make sure, okay, yes, you're qualified to move on to the next step. And the next step is kind of evaluation. They just want to know that one, you can interpret, like you can do consecutive and you can do simultaneous. And obviously that, you know, basic legal terms. So that one wasn't easy to pass. Then you take two weeks of online classes. Coincidentally, it was with Nestor Wagner. Again, he's the one that teaches them. His his wife actually is an immigration court interpreter. So, so yeah, so you take those classes and you learn all the immigration verbiage, which is different than your civil and your criminal verbiage. Sometimes it's the same word used and you just have to interpret it in a different way because of the, of the, you know, nature of immigration law. Um, So after you study that for two weeks, you get an extra week to study. And then you, um, you take another exam. So these are all done like remotely. So once you pass that second exam, and it's kind of like the state exam, you get your sites, you get your simultaneous and your consecutive, but obviously focusing on immigration terminology at this point. Mm -hmm. So after you get to this point, Then you go in person to your most closest immigration court and you have an orientation. You kind of learn how to sign in, how to sign out, and you observe. And you can observe as many times as you want. Um, I kind of did the two ones and I was like, let's go for it. So (laughs) after you, but I know people who observe for months Mm -hmm. because they just don't feel ready. And that's a whole other conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, I was like, let's do it because I don't want to forget everything that I studied, right? So I, I went in to my first hearing. It was in downtown LA. It was seven and a half hours long. And the very first, yeah, it was unusually long. The very first question they asked the respondent was, how did you cross the border? I could not remember the word for border. Mind you, I crossed the border like every month because my mom has a house in Mexicali, Mexico. So I'm always crossing the border. I always see the word for border frontera and I could not remember it's it's your nerves at that point so I, you know you have hacks right so at the, in the split second I had to think in my head can't remember the word for border what is a border it's the place where the two countries meet so I literally told this man how did you cross the place where the two countries meet in Spanish that's what I told him and I'll never forget his attorney looked at me like what was that because it was obviously his attorney spoke Spanish we finished the hearing. When we were done, his attorney goes, are you new? And I was like, literally my first hearing. She was like, you did really well, except for one question. I was like, yeah, border. The, the word came to me like three questions later. I just at the moment and come to me. She's like, no, you know, you did really good. Um, so one they later do is they listen to a minimum of 45 minutes of that interpretation um, to make sure that you did well, you have to pass with over 70%. And I think I had like an 89 or something like that. So the one word didn't kill me. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Now, let me pause you right there in that experience. So you're going in and at this point, you're still basically um, being evaluated, right? Mm -hmm. You're not yet on your own. So, and you're being evaluated by the company that you've gone uh, through the training with. Is that correct? Correct. The seven and a half hour trial, is there others helping you or is it just you it's just you on your own it's just you on your own that's pretty brutal because you know that that, I mean is that a standard or is that just because it was you know you're there being evaluated so they don't typically set up two interpreters I mean the way I understand it is there is typically not an immigration not an immigration that is one of the big differences so now I actually give orientations and whenever I get someone that is state certified and that has work in the courts as a, one of the first things I tell them, this is not team interpreting. This is all you. Um, so it's funny after those seven and a half hours, I remember like I wanted to cry, I got in my car and I told my friend, I was like, what did I just get myself into? That was brutal. <laughs> 
And then, um, like I'm Mexican, right. And this man was like from El Salvador. So he was using some terms that I was like, I'm not sure exactly what you're saying there. So I had to ask to inquire, which is expected, but that that's a, to go off top a little, a little bit, that's another uh, challenge in immigration quarters. So two main ones is no team interpreting you're on your own. And two is that you get people from all over Latin America that you will get words that sometimes it's even not even their countries, their tiny little village, and that's what they mm. use. And so you have to inquire or look it up or do something like that. Um, at but, the moment. Yeah. But yeah. No, you're in immigration, you're, you're on your own. There, there is no, no team interpreting. It's you. Yikes. That sounds super complicated. Help us understand the structure of immigration. I know you're not an attorney. I know you don't, you know, uh, you work uh, full-time in the court system or anything behind the scenes with immigration directly, but um, obviously as an interpreter in a specialization, if you do it for so long, you understand the basic structure, right. Of, of that particular uh, field. So help us understand what the structure of immigration is. Like I'm thinking in terms of say, for instance, this gentleman was in his hearing seven and a half hours. Does he have to come back? And and if he comes back, are you the same interpreter assigned or, you know, is it going to be different, different interpreters or help us understand that structure? Hey, before we continue, let me tell you a little bit about the HLS education terms online glossary. The HLS Education Terms Online Glossary provides easy access to the Spanish translation of educational terms. No more shuffling through countless glossaries. The HLS Network of Language Consultants comprises a veteran district and county office of education translators that have an in-depth knowledge of K-12 terminology. Translators will have access to terms, acronyms, and phrases related to special education, English language learner programs, parent advisory committees, medical and legal vocabulary, academic subject-specific terms, and so much more. In addition, this live glossary allows users to request new terms and tag favorites. Using the HLS Education Terms online glossary will increase your translation speed, accuracy, and vocabulary consistency. Try a free 30-day trial today by visiting www.hlsglossary.com. Yeah, so there's a few different ways it could happen. There's like a few different paths, for lack of a better word. So kind of the one that's most common is someone comes into the country, they either get detained right at the border or close to the border. They're called an arriving alien. Um, I'm not sure... what makes someone be sent to a detention center and what allows someone to be set free that I haven't figured out yet, but they could potentially be sent to a detention center or like, you're just kind of on your own, but you get issued what's called a notice to appear. And that's the charging document. And that tells you come back to immigration court at this address, at this date with this judge. So when they come back, it's what's called a master calendar hearing. And that's kind of the way I compare it to kind of like an arraignment. That's your first time appearing before the judge. The judge explains to you your rights, explains to you the charges against you. And at that point, he, um, he or she gives you the opportunity to either represent yourself or time to get an attorney. And that works if you're detained or not. That The timeline changes, but that structure stays the same. And then it may not be it probably won't be the same interpreter when they come back with an attorney. Hmm. Um, They usually get a few chances to get an attorney. And at some point the judge goes, you had enough chances, chances you're going to represent yourselves at the next hearing. Hmm. And then they have to file whatever relief. Most commonly in the situation I explained is asylum. They have to file the applications, file everything. And then we have what's called the merits hearing. So in a master calendar, you can have, honestly, like 30 to 40 people at once because they're quick. But when it's the immigration, the actual what's called the merits hearing, those are the long ones because now they have to get into the details. Why did you leave your country? Who mm. was persecuting you, et cetera? So that's the most common. There, And that's usually asylum, but there's also other avenues like adjustments, people who have been here and they have like someone petitioning for them. Those are usually quick. Um, or you have what's called a 42B, which is the cancellation of removal. It's people who've been here for over 10 years. Somehow, some way they got caught being here illegally, 
but because they have some sort of like cruel and unusual circumstance, they want to apply for this cancellation of, of removal. Usually that means, unfortunately, someone is very ill, cancer, tumor, something like that. And you have to prove that your removal, so if I was a respondent, then my removal would cause my, my either parent, um, spouse, or child who is either a resident or um, a citizen, extreme and unusual um, difficulties. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's a, those get really like medical based because it's usually some sort of like medical claim they're trying to prove. Like if you send me back to my country, my family member is going to suffer, and it's usually very very medical based. Um, then there's a 42A, which is someone who is a resident already and they did something to like break the law so now they have to come back and be like you broke the law do you deserve a second chance so i know i just blamed a lot but because there is a lot yeah and you're typically working with any combination of those or are do you like at this point uh, are you typically working with only detainees or it could be a variety of different encounters it can be different encounters. So it kind of depends the, the courthouse you're going to. Um, in LA, when I first started, there was two. And one courthouse dealt with in-person non-detains and the other one dealt with detainees. And then that changed. Um, sometimes you would go to the actual de- detention centers and there um, you, you have the trial for those who are detained. And then, for example, like I said, I mentioned in our earlier conversation, I'm currently in Las Vegas. So this morning I had a detention master calendar hearing, but th- they weren't in person. They were via VTC, a vi- vi- video teleconferencing. Um, so they're detained in the detention center. I, Hendricks, Nevada, if I remember correctly, that's where it is. And the judge and the attorneys are all in Vegas, including the interpreters. So we're going via teleconferencing. Those all are consecutive. But when you're in person in the detention center, then the respondent is there in person. You're all in person. In that case, you do the simultaneous. Mm. So it just kind of depends where you're at, what you're going to get. That was going to be actually my next question was, um, you know, were, whether you were interpreting in consecutive or simultaneous mode. So you just answered that question. <laughs> well, and then now you mentioned that you're in Vegas. So give us some of the perks of being an immigration interpreter. I, I, I'm thinking traveling is one. If you, if you like it, I love it. So <laughs> I, I, I love it, but Sometimes it does get brutal. So let, I'm going to send you back to a couple of weeks ago, the end of June. My birthday is June 29th, right? Happy so thank you. So June 27th, Sunday, I went to church, did my camera work. I literally had to leave church, go straight to the airport, hop on a plane, go to Salt Lake City, work Salt Lake City in the morning, fly back in the evening, Tuesday on my actual birthday, work in Los Angeles all day. Wednesday morning, fly out to Reno, Nevada, work in Reno in the afternoon. Thursday, fly out in the morning and work in LA Thursday afternoon. So sometimes you get crazy schedules like that. Now, obviously, you don't have to accept if you don't want to. I'm the crazy one and does. (laughs) And then if you can and you want to, exactly, (laughs) schedule would look like. Exactly. And then sometimes you do get lucky and you get to spend a few days in one area. And to me, those are nice because you get to kind of explore. If you get a decent enough hotel, enjoy the amenities. I mean, there are government paid, so you're not staying at like the Ritz. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, <laughs> but they have to, they have a standard and that's the good thing. They do, they do have a standard. So if you have a nice enough hotel, you can explore the amenities. Sometimes you're able to explore the area. Um, a few, well, last September, I spent a week in Vegas and it just so happened that I worked Monday, Tuesday, had Wednesday, no cases, and then worked Friday, Saturday. So Wednesday, there's a mob museum, like about two blocks from the hotel. And I got to go and I'm like 
weird because to me, everything is like, oh, let's practice interpreting this because they had an exhibition on like Pablo Escobar and everything in the cartels and oh. immigration court. You deal a lot with cartels. So I'm like reading it and like trying to interpret. And then they had a forensic lab and I was like interpreting like the ballistics and all of that. Like, I mean, in my head, but I was like, oh, I get to learn something cool and and also get yeah. to practice a little bit. The so. memes are so real. It's there's it's not a joke. Whether you're a translator or an interpreter, it's hard to turn that off. <laughs> so it's so true. You're practicing whatever you hear and you're like, wait a minute, why am I interpreting this? Like you need to stop. That's so funny. What yeah. about now then, Janet, um, the flip side? What would be something that you're like, you know, eh, it's not it's not my favorite, but it comes with the job. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the sometimes you get, you know, for lack of a better um, word, a different kind of Spanish that you're used to. And there's difficulties in that. Last week, I was in Salt Lake City for the whole week. And um, one day I had this Venezuelan man and he most Venezuelans that we get are highly educated, usually fleeing for political reasons. That's another thing. You start seeing trends like people from this country are usually this. So you kind of get to mentally prepare you see a counting you're like I can pretty much guess what this case is going to be about so as soon as I saw Venezuela I'm like oh my gosh it's going to be a highly educated person and sure enough he was um and there were some words that I'm like all right let me have to decipher what it is that you're trying to say you know um and then the next day I actually had here's another thing that happens in immigration court you might be originally with one judge and if you're done early, they could send you to another judge because that interpreter either didn't show up. Um, there are in-house interpreters that are like hired by that particular courthouse. And they're not just interpreters. They have to do paperwork. So because you're already getting paid to be there, they take the in-house interpreter out to do whatever cl uh, clerical administrative work they have to do. And they put you in their place because both are getting paid to do the work, right? So that's what happened in this case. I was done really early with my case. Like, I, I want to say after like 10, 15 minutes, we were done. And I knew they were going to need me. So I go to check with the other judge. Sure enough, they needed me. The other uh, lady, she was the in-house interpreter. She went to go do her administrative work. And I stayed there. And I had a prosecutor from Venezuela. Oh, my goodness. Double oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Like... <laughs> I remember I wrote down a sentence because I'm like, hey, let me decipher this one because it was just so high register and and just so legal. And it's, it's kind of weird because I don't know if every interpreter brains works that way, but you're used to going from like always hearing this word in English and saying it in Spanish. So the fact that she was saying it in Spanish, I'm like, wait, I know this. I just don't normally go in that direction. Give me a second. I Oh, wow. <laughs> and so I remember there were certain times where and then she was speaking a lot and I had to keep pausing her and she didn't want to pause. Oh. And and she's like, I'm not done. I'm like, I know you'll get your chance. Just just let me finish this sentence, this highly convoluted, complicated, legally sentence <laughs> in Spanish. And then my then brain explodes. Exactly. <laughs> so that that is challenging. I'm not going to lie. Um, another challenge at least for me personally is I see myself and a lot of these people like that I see my parents that could have easily been me in that situation it could have easily been my parents I got fortunate that my parents got amnesty when I was really young I don't have to deal with those issues um so you you try not to get emotionally invested in fact that's part of the job but not gonna lie it sometimes hits you you're like oh like and and you're there to give them the opportunity to speak and tell the judge their story. And then the judge makes the decision, right? The attorney makes the recommendation, the judge makes the decision. So you can't take the outcome personally, mm -hmm. but um, you're there to give them that opportunity. So that's the way I think about it. Like sometimes my uncle jokes with me, like you deport people. Like I do not deport anyone. <laughs> that's, that's a Mexican family for you right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I deport no one. I give them their opportunity to tell their story. If the judge feels they merit, um, you know, some sort of immigration uh, relief, they get it. And if not, that's on them. I at least gave them the chance. And that's the way I have to go in there with that right. mindset. Like I'm giving them their chance to speak. Yeah. Speaking of emotional health, um, 
it, it like you just mentioned, it, it it's really difficult to be able to differentiate um, or rather separate yourself from the from that experience, right? As you're there and you're listening. I mean, you are human after all. Um, what do you do? let's say after a really difficult assignment, something that really, you know, like really touched you, just really got to you, maybe hit a little closer to home than you would have liked. What do you do after those assignments in order to make sure that, you know, your mental health is protected? Is there anything that you specifically do? Or are you like a lot of us that say, oh, like I'll deal with this piece later and then never really do? You know, it it just depends on the case. Usually, before I start, I say like a prayer, like, you know, and I feel that like, like a little meditative prayer and that helps me go into it. But some of them are really difficult. Let's be real. If you can imagine someone took the chance and and took the risk of traveling all this way to get here, what must they be fleeing? So if you can imagine, I don't want to go into details, but can you imagine some of the the things I've seen, um, kidnapping and crazy stuff Mm -hmm. and so some of them like do do like kind of get to you and I just afterwards I usually just sit in my car for a little bit in silence and just kind of like go like okay just get it out because especially interpreter you're doing in the first person right Mm -hmm. so I was kidnapped I was mutilated I was beaten and you have to like take that time and be like no I wasn't (laughs) You know, that was their story, not you. And I just kind of take that time to just sit in quiet, you know, whether if I'm in a travel assignment is in, in the hotel room or, or in the airport sometimes, yeah. <laughs> or, if, or if it's in downtown, you know, in, in my car or somewhere and just like, just kind of sit in silence for a little bit and be like, that wasn't me, you know, and just kind of just let it roll off and decompress. Me, exactly. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. just being there in silence and just go, that wasn't me. That wasn't right. me. That that's to me the best, I guess, thing I can I can do, or that's worked. Yeah, and then you mentioned a, a an excellent point, which is that whole you know uh, first person deal, and I think that that, if anything, is what really drives it. Um, you know, aside from the story, of course, and everything that's happening, which perhaps I've I've never been in, in immigration court, but I imagine that the stories um, you think come from, you know, some Hollywood, you know, script or something of the sort, and it's actually real life. And then, you know, you, you use the word I, right? Like um, to, to almost owning the story as your own. So yeah, decompression, um, Absolutely. That that's definite. And in silence too, and making sure that you are telling yourself, you know, just like you do, it's, this isn't my story. So mm-hmm. I think it's huge because, you know, it's not something that we typically talk about. Um, unfortunately in the interpreting field with regards to, you know, the what's of, you know, what we can do in order to help ourselves and our emotional health. So thanks for sharing that. That mm-hmm. was, that was really great. I'd like to jump into now, Janet, and changing it a little bit and ask you, Oftentimes I get interpreters uh, that are at the beginning, like the next generation of interpreters, right? They're at the beginning of their careers and are unsure of where they should begin. And now that you've had the experience of where you started and kind of putting everything, you know, all the all, all the bits and pieces of your story together in order to, to feel prepared, like, you know, you've done this for a while and you are at a point where you could maybe give some tips or resources to people that are first joining. Thinking back from when you first started, would there be anything that you would have changed in terms of how you can begin in the field? Like, what would be your tip for someone that is just starting and says, like, I I like what Janet is doing. I think I'd like to start in that too. And if they said, Janet, where do I begin? Aside from the training, of course, where do they begin, Janet? Yeah. So you spoke a lot in your podcast. I've heard them all, by the way, and I love them all. And I recommend every interpreter to hear them all. I've been recommending them. Like, you have to listen to this one. I appreciate that. Yeah. So um, you talked a lot about um, selective volunteering. I never heard it phrased like that. But like I said, I did those internships and they help so much because I don't think interpreting is for everyone. When I did teen court, just to give you a brief example, there was another girl that did it with me and that she was like, not for me, Mm -mm." where I thrived in it. My very, very first case, um, 
So just to give a background, teen court are for like those kind of like teenage students who did something like bad, but it wasn't like bad enough for like to go to juvie or anything like that. It was like usually Mm -hmm. tagging, like threatening a friend on like Snapchat. That was my first case. Mm Like, um, there was a kid who broke into a pool, like after hours, like, like he didn't damage anything, but he did break into a pool after hours. Right. So kind of bad enough, but not too bad that they don't want like them to have a record. So Mm. teen court, um, they're real judges who are volunteering their time. Uh, they have a real actual probation officer there. And the jury, which is pretty neat, is all students. So they make sure that none of the students, so they send you to a different high school, all within, you know, LA County, so that it's not your peers. And so it's students, and they make sure, like, you know, the student No, So it's students making the decision. And some of the, um, some of the quote unquote, like punishments were like, you had to write an essay, you had to do community hours, you had a curfew for a few months. So kind of, kind of things like that. And I remember my very, very first case, it was this, because at that point, you're mostly interpreted for the parent. I was going to ask. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. you're interpreting for the parent, although I'll share a brief story about where I wasn't, but you're usually interpreting for the parent. And there was this mom, you know, typical Hispanic mom. She wanted to talk to the judge and she was asking me like, can I say something? I'm like, no, why not? It's my daughter. And I'm like, I'm supposed to be interpreting lady. Like, <laughs> like, stop it. I'm in um, my job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, you're interpreting what the judge are saying, the questions that they're they're giving, the jury's giving, you know, the student, the student's answers, et cetera. And then eventually they do ask the parents some questions. And this particular mom would not stop when asked a question. She just kept going, 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 going. I'm like, again, I'm new. I'm like barely a student. I'm trying to take my notes. I hadn't like mastered my note-taking system yet. And she wouldn't stop. And eventually I grabbed her physically grabbed her. I was like, please stop. <laughs> and I, I, you know, interpreted what she said as best as I could. I'm sure I forgot stuff because she wouldn't stop. Then she kept going. She wouldn't stop again. I physically grabbed her again. Like, please stop. Don't recommend doing that in court. But, <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, the judge was all like, oh, like you need to speak louder. He gave me critiques. Like you need to speak louder. I'm like, I've never gotten that critique before, but okay, I need to speak louder. And he's like, and yeah, sometimes you do have to grab them because they don't stop, like straight from a job. Interesting. You know, what's funny is in the school system when we're doing um, probably something that is that is uh, something right before they land on over on your end. Mm -hmm. um, You know, we do have disciplinary hearings and depending on, you know, what education code the student is broken and all that. Um, So we'll sit in hearings where we actually have, you know, administrators, really it's school administrators, um, someone from the community, probably representative. Sometimes we'll have um, an advocate for the family and then, you know, the family and the student. Um, and that's one of the very first things I remember, um, you know, in training that you, when you do your script for the parent, I don't know if, you know, there's time for that in the court system, but as w- right before we begin, that's one of the very first things that we mentioned, because we know that families tend to go on and on in defense of the student, particularly moms, like you said. <laughs> so, um, we uh, part of our script is allowing the parent or rather informing the parent that we will be tapping them on the shoulder should they need to stop <laughs> because you know we do know and then right my my very first experience was most definitely she kept going that i had to tap and i remember mom turned around and looked at me and said oh yeah <laughs> right like <laughs> oh that's right tapping i need to yeah. stop so um so i can see why the physical <laughs> right the physical yeah. Touch, yeah. We, we've had to use that but just yeah so to finish up that point is that i kind of thrive even though i had to physically grab this lady i kind of like thrived and i was like oh this is pretty cool whereas my partner she couldn't do it and we had um it was like i said a whole school year and she didn't want to like actually interpret to the parent and one day I was all like I've been doing all of them you need to do it and she did it she's like this is not for me so up to this point she was kind of serving me even though we were in the same level and she was like just this isn't for me and she realized it wasn't for her so I, I highly recommend selective volunteering um like I said I also did the Harry Buhai Center internship and the the LACBA domestic violence um that one was a pretty neat internship too, because it was, um, 
it's a free center at the uh, Stanley Moss Courthouse in downtown LA. So filing restraining orders apparently is the most difficult thing ever, and it shouldn't be, but it is. So it's, it's, it's also volunteer attorneys who come and help people file their restraining orders. And you're there to interpret um, between the volunteer attorney and whoever needs a restraining order. So they tell their story, the attorneys write it down, all the pertinent information, fill out the restraining order forms, do kind of their written declaration. And then you, you read the declaration that the attorneys just wrote just to make sure that it's all accurate perfect. They print everything out and then they kind of go next door to the office to actually file it. So that was also an internship I did. And that was pretty neat because when there was kind of downtime where there wasn't anyone that was needing um, Spanish interpretation at the, at the center at that moment, you got to go a few doors down to see the actual trials. So now they're before the judge and these are the people that you helped file restraining orders. And now you see the actual case, you get to observe the actual like actual certified interpreters. So that was another way that I was like, yeah, I really enjoy doing this. This is interesting. And then I got to see the people, you know, who needed restraining orders, get them in front of a judge. So that was another good one. And then the Harry Buhai Center, like I said, I still help them to this day. Um, Even though the internship is officially over, I still volunteer for them a lot. And they're kind of like a, like a pro bono family law center. They help people with like, um, like divorce, uh, it's like divorce or like property division, um, custody visitation, stuff like that. And it's all pro bono. And again, you're just there to help interpret between the person asking for the service and, and their, um, the volunteer attorney or rather pro bono attorney. And same thing. Sometimes you get to go to the actual courthouse and see the actual case with a certified interpreter and, and see it like again in real life. So, I feel like because I was able to do these three internships, that really solidified to me that I can do this and I would enjoy this. And like I said, there's people who did these and they were like, nope, not for me. Right. Which is, which is, which is fine. I mean, this isn't for everyone. Right. So, no. And it's actually great. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. So I feel like you're like, as part of your training, you had the opportunity for, um, you know, internships and potentially even at that point, um, um, considering that strategic volunteering, because you, you know, you, you have the training and you want to put your skill sets right to, to good use. Um, so that's as part of the training, if you're fortunate enough to have worked with you know, an agency that, that does that whole process. What about something that you wish you knew then that, you know, now that you'd like to be able to give to a potentially new interpreter in that specialization? Is there anything that has come across that, that you're like, man, I wish I knew this when I first started. Like you mean specific to immigration? I think specific. Yeah. To your specialization. Yeah, for sure. Interpreting in immigration. Well, first of all, I wish I knew it had existed. Um, because I would have definitely done this a long time ago because I do enjoy it so much. Um, Talk to other immigration interpreters would be the biggest thing because quite honestly, we learn the most from each other. So when I was new, I didn't just because I, even though I'm pretty outgoing, I can be a little shy at the beginning. So I, I wasn't necessarily going to other interpreters and asking them questions and stuff like that. And quite honestly, I learned the most because once in a while you'll get a word thrown in and like, what's this? And then the other interpreters are either from that country or had it before and researched it. And they're like, oh, you say it like this. And I think the best resource out of everything is your fellow interpreters. So I actually started like a Google drive, like trying to get glossaries and like information. And I share with like my fellow immigration interpreters and and then we also have like a big like group chat where we're like, how do you say this? Or today I got this. And how do we do that? And what, how would you handle this situation? So I wish I had thought of that sooner. So like I said, I do travel a lot. Sometimes you go to immigration courts and you're the only interpreter there because they're so small. Or sometimes you see other people. So now I go up to them like, hi, I'm from Malay. Are you from here? And they'll say yes or no. Have you interpreted here before? They'll say yes or no. I'm like, tell me about this judge. How can I handle this? Mm. Um, what are the protocols of this facility? Because each courthouse is even different. That's a whole other thing that you have to um, have to navigate. Um, And specifically for immigration, something that gets overlooked if you're a contract interpreter is that 
there is a resource center that was created by um, his name is Rogelio. He works for SOSI that has scripts, scripts of everything that judges say. So I think that a very intimidated intimidating part of immigration interpreting our oral decisions. So this is when a judge goes on and on from anywhere from 45 minutes to two hours. I'm not exaggerating when I say from 45 minutes to two hours and just go through like the whole legalese of the case. They usually give an overview of the case and then they go into the law because of this law. Like he doesn't meet this criteria. And because of this other law, he doesn't meet this criteria because of this other law. So it's just, so much legalese. And some people say it's challenging, it's intimidating. And I'm like, if you really think about it, it's the same thing repeated over and over again. Hmm. You know, obviously the person's name changes, the circumstances of why they're fleeing changes, but the law is pretty repeated over and over and over again. So I tell people, do not be afraid to print it out. They're available in that resource center. You can even just like Google, like e- are uh, judges scripts. Trust me, they're you can Google them. They're there. You can read them over. Highlight words you don't know, and don't be afraid. Like I have, I as soon as they go into the oral decision, I pull it out. Now, granted, not every judge follows the exact same format, but it helps you for like certain phrases because you kind of know where they're coming and where they're at. And when I also first started, because um, especially for the master calendar hearings, like I said, the big ones, it's the same advisements over and over again. Like you have a right to this, you have a right to that. If you don't show up, you'll get, you know, in absentia. It's the same thing over and over again. So remember the first time I had a master calendar hearing, I was like, I got frozen up because like, wait, what was that word? What was the word? And I was like, wait, I have the the um, flashcards I used to study in my bag. So I literally pulled them out. And when the judge went, huh, it's the exact same thing. And I just read it and I just read it and I just read it. So I always tell people, don't be afraid to have like resources. Don't, mm-hmm. don't, just don't be afraid of coming in prepared, whether that means you have the script in your hand so you can and highlight the words. And, you know, the way I did it was I put the script on one side and I kind of highlighted the words or phrases that kind of stuck me. And on the right, I just have not the whole paragraph, but like those key phrases or key words, you know, and they're there because it's the same thing. So over and over again. So I always tell people like, don't be afraid to have your notes out. Like for some reason, people are afraid to do that. They look unprofessional. And one time a judge, she's like, and what is it notes you have there? I'm like, oh, just key words that come up often. They're sometimes a little difficult to translate. I'm like, oh, I love how you're so prepared. It's looked as, yeah, it's looked at as a positive thing. And so many people look at it as a negative thing. Like, no, have him out there. Oh, right. I, know, I know in-house interpreters, like the one in Salt Lake City, when I took over, she took like her binder of like scripts and her like two dictionaries with like tabs everywhere. I've, I've, uh, I've gone to an iPad. So everything's on my iPad, but she's you know old school and had like her binder and her stuff like that is what it's supposed to be like, be, right. be prepared. And I feel like so, so many people feel that you're going to seem unprepared or unprofessional. I say quite the contrary. The more prepared you are, the more resources you have and the well-organized areas you can access them, that's the better. And I think that is the biggest suggestion I can give is don't be afraid to have your resources there and don't and take the time to organize into what fits you because what fits me may not fit that person I do the iPad this other interpreter has her binder and her tabs mine's everything organized on my iPad easily accessible and it's all there for me and that works for me and her binder works for her and something else might work for someone else so don't be afraid to use your resources or rather bring your resources and then Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to use them exactly janet we're getting ready to close out our episode time flies when you're having fun but (laughs) our last two things what do people often get wrong about immigration interpreting you know the biggest thing is that because you don't need to be certified the thing that we're not qualified. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing. We, we get assessed minimum once a year. I showed you, I just run over the steps. It took me to get this far. Not everyone passes all the exams. Unfortunately, I know so many colleagues that, that didn't pass. And then every year we get reassessed, which you don't when you're state certified. I'm not trying to say we're better or worse. I'm just trying to say we're not underqualified. That is the biggest misconception. It's like, oh, immigration interpreters are not, don't have to be certified. So they're not, good. Exactly. they're not good. Right. <laughs> no. And, 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 and it, it's not easy. As you heard, I did seven and a half hours by myself 
one case, uh, you don't have team interpreting and, and you're often assessed and our, our, all our hearings are recorded. So if an attorney objects, they can listen. And if, if, if they feel that the objection is warranted, you could get disqualified. So I think it's easier to get disqualified in immigration than it is in court because we're actually recorded. We don't use um, court reporters. It's an actual recording on, it's called the DAR. I forget what it stands for, but an actual like computer system. So it's not easy. We're not underqualified. <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's so great actually. And it's, it's important. That's why I open it, open it up to people sharing because um there is always some sort of misconception more than anything mm -hmm. about that particular specialty. Um, so I'm very happy that you mentioned that. And then is there any last thing you'd like to mention before we close out that you'd like to give out to our listeners or anything in particular that you'd like to say? Um, just that if, if you want to get into interpreting, I would definitely reach out to an interpreter, experience the different branches out there. Um, I'm available <laughs> if anyone wants to know about immigration interpreting. But I think before you decide to take the plunge and invest in courses, talk to interpreters, observe whether wherever the, you know, whether it be in regular court, immigration, civil, wherever it is you think you're interested in education, you know, in your case, if you can find an interpreter to one, ask questions to observe. I would do that before I would invest in money. Because like I said, I saw fellow schoolmates of mine invest all this money only to realize it's not for them. So, yeah. Ah, love that. Observe. That's another good one. Janet, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. You can look me up, Janet Valdez, nice and simple. I also have a little blog. It's still in the starting stages, but I'm trying to bring it up. It's called Interpreter Life, life with a Y. So interpreterlife.com. Um, so I do have some stories on there about my most recent one. I called it I Love Lucy Interpreting because we do a lot of relay interpreting in immigration court. And funny enough, I my aunt's husband went through immigration court in the same building where I did my first hearing. And I remember sitting there and seeing the interpreter and going, I could never do that. And, and I, that's a little blog I wrote about, but this is just a funny story because I was like, I could never do that. That's difficult. No. And I kid you not, what, like 15, 20 years later, same building. There I was, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting, but yeah. The irony. You never know. You never know. Yeah. That's why I called it interpreter life because it's just little funny life moments about being an interpreter. And, and that's one of the funniest ones, in my opinion, at least in my life. <laughs> Love it. Thank you so much, Janet. I really appreciate the opportunity to have you today on the show. I think it is absolutely uh, a topic that I've been thinking about, you know, uh, and hoping to find someone that can come and bring in a little bit and blow a little bit of life into, um, you know, this particular specialization that seems to be a little hidden away. So I'm very happy that you decided to accept the invitation and come on the show. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've definitely enjoyed being here. Love talking about it. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Take care. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.